This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody. David Lasondak here. And today, my guests are co-authors, David Lauderstein and Jeff Rockwell, who just wrote a book called The Memory Palace of Bones, Exploring Embodiment through the skeletal system. These guys have been at this for five decades. So when they start going through their bona fides and their experience, it's quite the origin story from osteopathic to chiropractic to just about, I think, every kind of body work imaginable, uh, different types of somatic trainings. It's really something. And then we start diving into the book which I think you're really, really going to enjoy the conversation. And I think at the end of the pod today, you're going to be experiencing things or thinking about things a little bit differently, which is why you tune in. But before we start, I want to ask you a question. Did you know that next year is a leap year? That's right. Next year, you've got one extra day, the 29th of February. What are you going to do with it? How about using it to improve your understanding of fascial anatomy? As much as I think I know about fascial anatomy and putting it all together, there's always something new for me to learn. And I think you should use your leap day to join my friends and the co-directors of Anatomy Scapes, Nicole Tremblay and Rochelle Clausen, who are doing a fantastic job creating compelling, well-illustrated dissection-based anatomy education for all kinds of hands-on professionals. These courses have taken aspects of fascial anatomy to the next level for me, and they can do that for you too. And next year, 2024, you can spend leap day with them. That's right. Anatomy Scapes is going to have a special three-day course on February 27, 28, and 29 in sunny San Diego, California. And you can join them for an anatomy masterclass about the human fascial system journey into the matrix. My other friend, Allison Denny from Rebel Massage, she's going to be there teaching with them as well at this special event. So that's three great teachers for three fascia-filled days. If you love hands-on learning, then this is the masterclass you've been waiting for because you're going to have hands-on in the classroom, hands-on in the dissection lab, and then you're going to have hands-on at the treatment table. So go to anatomyscapes. That's like landscapes, but anatomy. Anatomyscapes.com slash matrix. Find out more and apply today. And use the promo code friends of David. So they'll know that I sent you. And you know what? If you do that, you're going to get a special gift. It's a surprise. I don't even know what it is, but if I know Rochelle and Nicole, it's going to be something pretty cool. That's anatomyscapes.com slash matrix. And one last reminder before we get to the show, if you don't have the second edition of my book, Fascio, what it is and why it matters, and you'd like it for 20% off, there'll be a promo code in the show notes and links for the U.S., the UK, and Australia. The offer is only good until the 15th of October, so don't wait. 20% off Fascia, What It Is and Why It Matters, the second edition. And now, on to the show. All right, everybody, welcome to Body Talk. And today, I'm really excited to have with me massage therapist David Lorenstein and chiropractor Jeff Rockwell, who just co-created, co-wrote this really great book called The Memory Palace of 
bones. And um, first of all, seeing a massage therapist and a chiropractor collaborate is always a good thing, let alone collaborate on a book that is a real gem, in my opinion. David, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you very much, David. Pleasure cool. to be here. That, Jeff, why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about your background, and then when you're done, David, it'll be your turn. Okay, I'll try to give you the short version. Um, I was living in India in the 70s, much of the 70s, living in a, in a spiritual community, and there was a Rafa there. I didn't really know that much about Rafing, but everything I had heard about it was, um, actually very little I heard about it was regarding fixing back pain, neck pain, things like that. It was all about emotional liberation and you know things that really appealed to me as a young kid that was pretty introverted and kind of socially awkward. And I signed up for a session, and what really did it for me was um, we had about 800 Westerners living in this community, and we had a Western area where people would put up advertisements, and this guy, Keith Gilchrist, put up an advertisement saying, uh, get Roth, it will balance your chakras. And that was <laughs> I'm not even sure I knew what a chakra was, but uh, I signed up, and I, in that first visit, I, I, I went from this stoop-shouldered, stuttering kid to... Um, standing so upright that I just was hysterical laughing afterward. It was like when I got glasses in the sixth grade and I put them on, I went out with my parents' front lawn and saw like beads of dew on the grass. I saw the world so differently. I decided then that I wanted a career in, in manual therapy or body work. And uh, I was fortunate enough, I got I trained in polarity therapy when I came back from the States. And I got a job in Lucerne Valley, California, and unbeknownst to me, uh, literally a mile and a half from my house was Brew Joy's place, uh, Sky High Ranch, and Ida Roth was living there at the time. And I never studied with her. I did meet her on one occasion. So, uh, we could talk about that over drinks sometime off the air because it's a funny <laughs> story. But it involves illegal substances. I just, I, I got I continued getting rolfed, and I also worked uh, at a health spa about another mile and a half away from where they lived. And then when I moved to Santa Cruz, where I live now, I got a job working, uh, doing body work for a chiropractor who, really wonderful guy, Ed Feldman. Uh, he was into craniosacral work before, you know, this was 1979, 1980. Uh, Feldenkrais, he was actually in that Amherst training with him. So I got to see a very different picture of what a chiropractor was like. And I began my chiropractic training. I moved to Georgia, did my training there. But I always felt like a fish out of water. I just never bought the idea of bones going out of place. Mm -hmm. To me, it was more function, motion. And I was lucky enough to, well, many of us were lucky enough to have a man named Dr. Henri Jolet from Belgium come to our school and teach us something called motion palpation. He actually, he graduated from Palmer Chiropractic College in 1923, quit the profession a year later because he couldn't stand this, you know, trying to straighten spines out and then making people sick or taking people that were really sick but their spines were straight on an x-ray so he was told not to do anything. Anyway, that changed me. Mm -hmm. So I really, uh, I didn't resonate with the adjustment. I always felt kind of, you had to learn how to do it, but I always felt a little clench in my stomach like this is not my language and my literally the week before i graduated a man named dr john Manell, who you probably have heard of he was a contemporary of janet Travell. he came and spoke at our school and he made a comment that changed my life he said the adjustment should be to the chiropractor what surgery is to the surgeon and it's just 
Mm -hmm. Now, some people very, you know, almost evangelical, you know, adjust everybody and save the world kind of school. I know those guys. Yeah. I I asked him and I said, I'm in love with what you said. Tell me more. And he he recommended that I I take a class with Dr. Travell, which I did. And I was had the fortune of studying with her for 10 years. And uh, all through my chiropractic career, my focus was on fascia. And my focus still, my main love still on fashion. I, I got I got interrupted there. Is that that would have been like in the eighties? Yeah, I met her in eighty seven, and of course she passed. I think it was ninety seven or ninety six. Right, but 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 to have a chiropractic education with a focus on fascia, or was it Travell that put you on that track? That's what I'm trying to zoom in on. Well, two it was two people simultaneously. Travell for sure. Uh, when Dr. Manel made that comment, I signed up to take a class with Dr. Ray Nimmo, who still was, he was alive, and he was a chiropractor from Granbury, Texas, who founded a form of, you probably sure you've heard of it, um, called receptor tonus technique. Uh, I'm so old, they called it Nimmo back then. Exactly, he still called it. <laughs> yeah. and, and I was very impressed with his work. I did as many seminars as possible. And I liked that he was a chiropractor who had some of the same concerns that I did about the profession. Um, I'm not criticizing the profession. I just believe that we all have kind of our own language or our own path or our own temperament that we should honor by practice in a way that's congruent with that. But Travell, I mean, I drive around in a car that has a picture of Travell on the dashboard. Uh, you know, every morning when I go to my office, I thank her for the inspiration. So I would say she was the prime teacher and the prime inspiration in my life. In about 93 or so, an osteopath came into my life by the name of Robert Fulford. And that also had a huge impact on me. And that prompted me to go to osteopathic college in Canada uh, because I wanted to take his classes. I tried to sneak in. I got thrown out because I was not an osteopath. But I love bones too. I mean, the one thing I really enjoyed about my car, well, one of many things I enjoyed about my chiropractic training was just the focus on the anatomy of bone. I always liked hiking still do and when i would find a maybe a you know a humorous of a do they have humorous uh of a cow or a deer or a vertebra of some animal i would always just study it and like it was a piece of art so i always had this kind of almost romantic attraction toward bones we'll talk about i'll talk about that more in terms of how did the book come to be but that's kind of my career i taught chiropractic uh, college for 11 years mm-hmm. uh, lots of seminars 400 seminars in the 90s i love working with fascia, I love working with bones. I use bones as levers to work with the fascia. And I also view bones as a type of fascia. That, that is a viewpoint that, that some people have. That's a, that's a broad swath and a deep swath, uh, certainly reflected in what I've read in the book. But David, let's turn it over to you. What's, what's your origin story? Well, I'm uh, originally from Chicago and my first love was music. And so from the age of 13 to about 25, music was in the forefront of my life, uh, starting with folk music, blues, rock and roll. I studied Indian music in Berkeley in 1967. And then I decided that I needed to know my Western stuff. So I went and got my bachelor's in music composition from University of Illinois. At the same time, I was quite interested in philosophy and poetry. So that was like my minor. And I went to Germany in 72 and had kind of a crisis because I realized slowly, I was beginning to realize that I didn't want to earn my living 
within the realm of music. And so who was I? So I came back to the States. I had read book Primal Scream by Arthur Janoff. I was ready to scream my way back to hell. Along with <laughs> Rolfing got popular during the Primal Scream. I didn't uh, luckily find a Primal Scream therapist because it was pretty extreme, but I did mm -hmm. get into Gestalt psychotherapy. Yeah. As part of that, they now, Nowadays, I believe it's called the Landmark Foundation. Is what? Primal Scream therapy. That, that's, oh, a joke. Oh. that's a joke. That's a joke. That's Never a joke. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> so I. Um, it's asked, actually. It's asked. <laughs> they recommend that I get massage, get rolfed. And so I got rolfing. Interestingly enough, from the same rolfer as Rolf Gil Headley, around the same time, we were rolfed by a man named Ellen Davidson in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it changed both of our lives. It does. And uh, so that slowly turned me on to how body work could be as profound as Beethoven. I felt the profundity of body work and I wanted to explore that. So I started a group in Chicago, just informally meeting every Monday night. And then gradually I got to the point where, well, you know, I want to do this. So beginning in 1977, I began studying with Bob King, who was the founder of the Chicago School of Massage Therapy. And then um, in 1981, Daniel Blake, who was a rolfer who actually had graduated with Alan Davidson, Daniel came to Chicago and proposed to do his training, which was an offshoot of rolfing, like Heller work. He called his stuff structural body work. And I studied with Daniel for 500 hours. That helped me really uh, appreciate and get to know my anatomy a whole lot better. So I started teaching the anatomy and the so-called deep tissue at the Chicago School of Massage Therapy. And, uh, and I brought a certain you know, kind of dramatic and artistic flair to the language I chose and because it was part of my background. I love teaching there, but uh, I was attracted to Texas. Some people invited me to teach some workshops there in 84, early. I just fell in love with Austin particularly, and I decided to move to Austin. So I came to Austin. I was the dean of faculty for a school that just then started called the Texas School of Massage Studies. And I taught alongside John. And after about three years, we went, you know, we need to be in a school which is run in as healing a manner as the subjects that we're teaching, which was not the case for that school. It was business-wise, she wasn't real together in terms of how she treated people. So we started our own school, the Lauderstein-Conway Massage School in 1989 with the mission statement to run the school in a manner as healing as the subjects that we taught. Wow, that's great. It was a pleasure and it still is a good, you know, very high mission state because it's, a, it's an ultimate goal. It was in 1980, let's see, I guess it was 86 that I first heard and had heard for a while about Dr. Fritz Smith, who was the founder of Zero Balancing. I'd studied cranial work already, and that already had gotten me to realize that you didn't need to use a lot of pressure in order to affect somebody deeply. So at that point, I had changed the name of what I was teaching from deep tissue to deep massage with the implication that you wanted to affect the person deeply, and who knows what kind of touch is going to do the trick. Yeah, and the same person in a completely different place. Absolutely. 
So that's when I changed the name of what I was teaching, a deep massage, the Lauderstein method. And then in 86 or so, I met Fritz, the founder of Zero Balancing. And I had the feeling at that time, well, there was something that I wasn't touching and I, I couldn't believe it. I'd studied all sorts of stuff by that point. And uh, I met Fritz, he did a lecture in Washington DC at an AMTA convention. And he started talking and he said, well, there is energy running through the body because you're alive. And the layers of the anatomy each have a somewhat characteristic energy, namely that the skin is quite different than the muscles which you can operate voluntarily. And the deepest level of energetic flow is the deepest structure, namely the skeletal system. And I was like, I've literally felt a light bulb light up over my head. Nice. I was like, oh my God, I've, I haven't related to bones as living meaningful entities. And uh, so from then on, I was teaching or I became trained to practice and then to teach zero balancing along with the deep massage that I was already teaching. So I teach those, both of those things. And uh, actually Jeff came and took a couple of deep massage seminars from me, which is where we met. Okay, and, yeah, that was gonna be the next question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we quickly became good friends. We took a, a bit of a car ride together from Mammoth Lakes, California to, I think it was Lake Tahoe or something and had this great conversation along the way. And uh, so that's when we became acquainted. And so, you know, I've been doing ever, all I do ever since, still a little music, but I've written five books now and mm -hmm. I love writing. And uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm retired from running my school, but we still have two excellent people running it. And I'm happy that I've That's been great. So you, you've that. not been bought out by Cortiva, if Cortiva even exists anymore. Yeah, no, we, we refused all offers. That's great. None of them seemed to prioritize education. They just prioritize mm -hmm. profit. And that mm -hmm. leads to uh, a lesser appreciation of education and our mission. Yeah. So you and Jeff maintain connection from yeah. that initial we car Jeff ride. Jeff teach a number of workshops at our school. Ah, okay. So we got to know each other more then. And yeah. So I, you, I can attest to the the truthfulness of what David's saying. You know, I have been to the school to teach a number of times, and uh, they 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 exceed their mission statement. That's great. Thanks. That's really yeah. great. So yeah, well, this is not your first book, uh, Jeff. You have published five books of somatic poetry. David, you've got a number of books about the body and body work. How did this collaboration come about? <laughs> You, Dave, can I start? Yeah, yeah. With a laugh like that, you have to let me start. And then, and then I'll, and then I'll, I'll start and I'll stop halfway through so you can finish. David mentioned that he has written five books, and uh, I, I love both of the uh, the way both of you use language. I mean, David, the Sondak. Uh, Thank you. You know, you've written technical books, but you have a sense of humor and a warmth and a conversational to the way you write, which is that's really, really difficult to pull off well, I think, but you do a great job. And David Lauderstein, his writing to this day um, deeply inspires me. The only person I can think of who I would call like a somatic poet, a bodywork poet, in addition to David would be Gil Headley. And I, re I read their, both of their writings and it really inspires me. Well, David Lauderstein wrote a book 
I believe, David, it was in the 80s. It was called Putting yeah. the Soul Back in the Body. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. it really, the title, I bought it based on the title. Mm-hmm. And it's an anatomy book written very poetically in which he goes through most of the muscles, if not all the muscles in the body, and he tells stories about them, uh, kind of uh, teases out their their personalities, uh, you know, the, their individual personalities. I, I loved it. And when I taught chiropractic college, um, I used that as, as one of our books in our palpation class, just for, for people to learn how to appreciate muscles from a different angle. Anyway, during the pandemic, when the pandemic first happened, like probably the case for both of you and many of your listeners, we, you know, we didn't, I didn't know what was coming next. I had no clue. My practice fortunately only dipped for like two days and then went back to normal. But I thought, you know, we may be mandated to not practice. And of course, you both probably remember there was a lot of talk about, hey, can you do osteopathy or body work remotely? And I have no background in that whatsoever, but I was on Facebook one day and there was an ad by an osteopath in Bali for learning a remote technique osteopathic technique and i just i liked the way the guy described what he was doing so i signed up for his course which i did remotely uh, and it really it was all about engaging bones in the quantum field i can't really describe it any better than that but you had to learn every little landmark which i knew mostly mm-hmm. but i didn't know all the landmarks inside the skull i remember going well i don't remember learning about this And I just, I got bones out. I got a real skeleton. I got a plastic skeleton, a skull. And I just, I just studied bones. I just kind of lived and breathed bones for about six months. And during that time, because our teacher was talking about the emotional characteristics some people associate with different bones, I thought, man, I would like to write a book on bones like David did on muscles. And then I thought, because I'm a big fan of collaboration, why don't I ask David if he wants to write a book with me? on bones so i contacted david and david said what did you say david oh i said uh i said wow (laughs) (laughs) let me think about that yeah i said uh it sounds very interesting send me some example of your writing because i really didn't know jeff as a writer and he sent me what became the uh his contribution to the chapter on the sternum which i thought was just fantastic so I quickly was converted to saying, uh, yeah, let's let's do this. And uh, shall I continue, Jeff, from here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Please so, do. Um, I, as we were talking originally then, I said, well, you know, there's a book that I really love called I Send You This Cadmium Red, unfortunately out of print. But it was a book collaborating between John Berger, who's one of my very favorite essayists on art and culture, and a John Christie, who's an artist. They exchanged letters on different colors, and they were deep, deeply felt relationships to cadmium red, to violet, to indigo, with examples that the artist particularly would send, you know, like uh, almost like a scrapbook of colors. And I said, why don't we do it as an exchange of letters about bones? And Jeff said, yeah, let's do that. So that's the way you actually put it together. Yeah, with letters. Yeah, so for the audience, it's not like the chapters are woven. 
with each of their voices, it's like you hear David and then you hear Jeff. And then there's some other things we'll talk about in a bit. And so it's very, it's very much sectioned that way, but it, it, it does feel like a dialogue. It does feel like an exchange and they're very complementary to each other. Yeah. And, you know, we, um, you know, we decided to do it that way. And when Hanspring had approached us, then we thought, okay, maybe we should address it, not just letters to each other, but change it where we're addressing the audience rather than each other. So we kind of changed the tenses and revised the whole manuscript uh, to be something which people could read as addressed to them. Yeah, I think it works very effectively that way. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Although I would love to see, uh, I'm sure we both got copies of it, the original version of the book, which was a series of letters. Be fun to look at it now. Yeah, well, maybe maybe you can do a, a bespoke version. We've thought <laughs> with the original, particularly if it was handwritten letters, and we could get uh, we could get the actual you know scans in and do it that way. <laughs> There's a name for that, and I'm blanking on what it is right now. Uh, right. Annotated, yes, an annotated version. Mm-hmm. So um, what I have to tell you that uh, the audience that I really enjoy about this book, and this is this is not a book to read. Okay, that's going to sound really weird, but I mean it this way. Uh, it's a book to sip on. Uh, if there's one criticism I could get of the book, there are some places where it's like, oh, I wish they put a couple of blank lines before the next paragraph started because I wanted to just sit with that because suddenly we're going to go, we're going to go this way. So we're going to go from classical literature to a more naturalistic interpretation to Sanskrit to Greek mythology <laughs> to Latin roots for things, you know. So and there's just so much to dig into mm-hmm. uh, that this is not something you're going to, you could sit down and read it over a long afternoon. But I think uh, by the end of that long afternoon, you need to sleep for a day. There's just so much in here that just really needs to be sipped on and and ponder. I think we even have a recommendation in the book that you don't read it. It's like walking through a museum. You If you walk through a museum fast, you, you can't get a relationship to anything. And of course, called here the memory palace, the implication is you're walking through a structure that evokes very deep ar- archetypal memories and that you need to wait. Uh, and I recommend people read one chapter and then you know wait a day you know, before you read the next chapter and do the embodiment or longer, you know, and it's kind of nice in our culture to have people say, you know, could you please read this slowly? It's like body work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have a saying, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing slower. So I like that. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. I feel like one thing our culture needs now more than ever is to sip life rather than gulp it you know, break away from the grind culture and, and get back to this, you know, savoring mm-hmm. and sensuousness. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that's that's the great thing about mindfulness. I'm mindful of how much coffee I drank and I'm mindful of how hard I'm working. Wow, that's great. Um, I think we're, <laughs> we're losing something in the translation there. Um, but yeah, it's in, it's in the book as important note to readers. And I love that it's framed that way because it's like, oh, I guess I better read this because, you know, people jump in. They don't always start at the beginning the way that we authors want them to, you know, but let's jump into the middle of the path. And you actually probably can do that. So like if you've got a favorite bone. Oh, yeah. um, You you know, it's not like you have to go bone by bone by bone. You can just kind of dive into the the one that you want. There's one thing that that just stands out. And this is a good example of what I'm talking about. Um, The thoracic spine 
uh, chapter, which is one I really like. And, and here was a little thing that popped out at me that I did not know, which was in Sanskrit, the heart chakra is called anahata, mm -hmm. which means unhurt or unbeaten. Okay, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's not generally, you know, I'm, I'm contrasting this with, uh, with Bono talking about a, one of his favorite metaphors is that a heart that's broken is a heart that's open. Which seems very different than this unheard or unbeaten, which I really like the resiliency of that. The reason I put that in there, at least one reason why I put it in there, the part about the un can't, you know, that's that that's unhurt. Um, it's a to me, it's a reference to uh, A.T. Still, the founder of osteopathy's quote about uh, you know finding the health that's never lost. Mm, that there's, mm -hmm. this, there's there's always this part inside of us that can't be damaged and we can go into a big discussion about that we won't now but um that was a piece of it that if we can find our heart and i don't mean just metaphorically or poetically or sentimentally but also if we can actually like listen to and feel our heartbeat if we can feel the way the thoracic kyphotic curvature kind of hugs or caresses the heart to me i find that very emblematic of the whole body. I, mean, I love the way you sign your letters, only connect. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's all these connections, and that's one connection from a phenomenological perspective that I see. There's the heart, which is not only symbolic of, but is actually an expression <laughs> of the health that's lost. The heart behind the heart, I'll call it. And then there's the thoracic spine, just, you know, just like holding it like you would hold a baby. That last line in the quote is, uh, live in fragments no longer. And I find that, well, definitely attuning to the heart and engaging the heart, but also doing it via the thoracic spine's relationship with the heart is a really good way of, of healing almost existential pain. And I wanted just to mention something. I'm not sure when I, when I teach to osteopaths, a lot of them don't know this, but we've always scratched our head and go, why osteopathy? Why that name? It's kind of an odd name. It doesn't seem very poetic. It's it's a little better than lightning bone setter. <laughs> it's a lightning bone setter, and that and this is where the the, me, the meaning comes from. Is this the depth of his um, bone setting? Uh, it came from his long term, almost lifelong relationship with the Shawnee in his area. Oh, okay. And also, he was part, uh, I don't know what part, but he was part Native American himself. He was part of a tribe called the Lumbee, who are no longer in existence. But but the meaning isn't just, if I say to somebody, oh, yeah, I practice osteopathy, they go, well, what is that? What's that? Is it like a chiropractor? And I said, yeah, yeah it's kind of a, the cousins. But what he meant, I found this out visiting Kirkville not too long ago, was it meant to him osteo bone mm -hmm. pathy suffering not pain but suffering okay. and he found his intention was not only to have a hands-on method of working with disease but of being able to find the health within that's never lost so that deep existential suffering especially the suffering around disconnection you know seeing others as separate that we have to be engaged in some weird zero-sum relationship with and fight with he, he saw the opportunity to heal from that by his work with fashion and with obviously with bones but really with with this thing or non-thing that can't be hurt
the etymology, while uh, Jeff and I were just looking it up to deepen our own knowledge of the heart and uh, the fantastic etymology of Anahata, the you know yogic name for the heart chakra. And literally it means the sound produced without touching two parts. Mm. Produced without touching two parts. So it's almost like the sound of one hand, one hand clapping. clapping. Yeah. 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 And it's unbeaten. So it's like you're unstruck, which could be an instrument in either case, um, and unhurt. So there's the implication of courage. There's the implication of, you know, a sound produced uh, without touching two parts. Um, so it's really got its own koan to understand what they're talking about when they talk about anahata. And uh, so it's a beautiful way to understand. And so, some of what we did in the book was look at the etymologies as kind of almost like implying archetypal origins of where a given bone is really coming from and what role does it play in our lives. So what surprised you when you were exploring that aspect of this book? Well, for me, I somehow I got wind of the tribe in Mali called the Dogon have a whole mythology around the clavicle and it being the origin of the whole body. What? Yeah, it's wild. And they've got all sorts of stuff. And I quote some of it in the, in the book, uh, but unbelievable uh, insights, some of which are grounded in science because the clavicle is, as they said, the first bone to develop. It is the first bone to develop in the embryo, is the clavicle. And it's also one of the last to fully ossify. Um, so uh, the clavicle ended up being, uh, I think, the biggest surprise for me. And I, I love it more than ever. Yes, it's another episode of My Favorite Bones with David and Jeff. So, Jeff, your turn. Well, I love that bone, too. I don't know if it's my favorite, but um, I do a lot of work with what I call polyvagal manual therapy. And mm -hmm. uh, in a it's a big topic these days. But the clavicle, you know, it's it, it exists in such intimate relationship with many of the Well, there's five of them, but the, the cranial nerves that comprise the connection system or the social engagement system. So I'm always working around there. But as David Lauderstein can attest uh, to, uh, you know, actually working with the bone itself, working with the clavicle or any bone can be very fruitful. Um, maybe it's uh, fruitful in the sense that it, um, it, it uh, elicits a piezoelectric response. Um, you know, we have, a, a, I think it actually comes from zero balancing, but I, we talk about it in osteopathy as well, the concept of bone gold. You're feeling a bone and there's an area where there's a lot of stored tension in it. And we'll just say that it's hard. It's harder than it should be. Uh, what we would call an osteopathy, an intraosseous lesion. Not a great word, but an intraosseous lesion. And the way we look at it is that, like if I'm working with the clavicle, and a lot of people have fractured their clavicles or they've injured their clavicles, you know, falling on an outstretched hand, and now they have an area that's very dense. They may be, people worry about, oh, this is really stuck. It must, must really be bad. And I try to get them to realize that 
know, there was an input of energy internally or externally that the body couldn't quite understand or make sense of. And it stored that energy, you know, since it can't be created nor destroyed. So it stored the energy for future use when the system could either make sense of it or at least not view it as a potential threat. And the more stuck, the more energy for conscious evolution and transformation lies within those bones. And the clavicle is a wonderful one to work with. Can My you favorite give me a, is going to be a clinical example of how that manifested. I'm going to bring David Lauderstein into this too, because David's um, teaches zero balancing. I don't teach zero balancing. Um, but there's this concept of framing a session. So a person can come in and, you know, if we, if we don't offer them that opportunity, they're going to tell us their, their complaints, which, you know, it's an honor to treat those areas. And it's honest. It's, it's, it's very, very noble to be able to help them you know, to be free of pain. But they can also say, you know, I have an interview. It's really important to me for a job that I've been yearning for for a long time. And I'd like to frame the session so that I have more confidence in, 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 in pursuing that. So I look for those areas like where, where is that bone goal? Where are areas where the bone, and it could be fashion, it could, doesn't have to be bone, where it's most restricted, not viewing it as something that's bad, but something as this is fuel that is going to propel you towards actualizing that, that frame. So I, I do some work with, uh, it depends on what people are coming for. When people are coming for something like that, there are some points around the head, nerve, nerve areas and, ner and nerve reflexes that I'll work. And I'll ask the person to visualize the frame or to visualize what it is they want to manifest physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And my sense just based on clinical experience is that working these areas really aids the person tremendously in, in fulfilling those desires i'm thinking of one woman right now i can't say her name but she's a no. well-known singer and uh she had danced with the san francisco ballet for about 12 years and she wanted to go, go into her next phase of her career as a musician and that's what she would say this is this is my frame and i would do these areas i'd find these areas i'd hold them but i would also go back and forth to areas where the bones were not really stuck but whole contacts there and ask her to visualize it. And now she's moved to Santa Monica and she's got, she just scored an opera and she has like a lot of stuff on Spotify and it's all mm -hmm. coming true. Now, did it come true for her because of that only? Probably not. But I think it's an example of that the body, part of the health that's never lost is that the way it organizes trauma or the way that it organizes not being able to understand inputs yeah. Well, how, how about how about the way it organizes healing? David Larson, yeah, can you say more about that because you, you you guys are experts at talking about how the bone holds these things and what it offers when bone is contacted. Well, you know, as we kind of explored in the book and in our discussions with each other, you talked about the term bone gold. The implication is every bone is like a hidden treasure, like the whole, whole skeletal system is like a, a pirate's chest of gems in many ways. Arr, look at the bones. Yeah, arg. <laughs> and, you know, when you talk about the clavicle, you can definitely note, I, I remember reading, Ida Rolf said that the clavicle was the most important bone of the shoulder girdle. So 
you know, the way in which it's resting on or adhered to the upper ribs is something which can compromise respiration. It can give rise to thoracic outlet syndrome. And um, so freeing the clavicle from the first and second ribs, you know, creates a completely different um, relationship to posture. Plus, um, the clavicle is the only horizontal long bone in the whole body. You know, knowing that this is the horizontal bone, horizontal, only horizontal long bone, gives us a window into the energy flowing horizontally through us, as well as the energy that's flowing vertically through us. Because our connection to the society around us is through reaching out with our arms and so on. And that is something which enhances the horizontal energy flow um, of connection as well, connection to each other, as well as, of course, the vertical flow. I love that. We're connected through heaven and earth. Yeah, because, because as you know, David, there's so much bodywork training of all different brands and types. They get obsessed with balancing around the vertical. Very rarely do I hear about the horizontal, almost never. And suddenly you're, I'm thinking, wait a minute, I think the first and second rib, clavicle and all that in dealing with frozen shoulders, uh, it's almost never thought about. So you've given me a really good insight that I'm probably going to put into practice this week when I get back uh, to the inside yeah. part of my job. So thank yeah. you for that. Um, that's lovely. And the whole book is like this. So if you've been enjoying the conversation that David and Jeff and I have been having, uh, there's still like 211 more bones to go because we're only going to talk about one in depth, right? We have 212. So that, that's a lot of bones to, to pick through. But the other portion of the book that I want to be sure we highlight is that along with their socio-poetical, etymological, experiential, I, I could come up with a bunch of other adjectives uh, uh, for the way they, they want to use the word dissect, but it's wrong, uh, explore all the different potentials, the way the bone can be looked at symbolically, culturally, physically, anatomically. There is an embodiment piece at the end of each chapter, like a little exercise or embodiment meditation to kind of put you more in touch with that bone in some way. And I'm wondering if you would like to lead the, our listeners through one of those. When we first submitted the book to the publisher, one of the main uh, pieces of feedback we got was that there, people wanted more practical applications than just our somewhat philosophical you know, approach. As you said, it's anatomical and clinical, et cetera. But so we decided to add an embodiment to every chapter which we wrote after we'd done the main body of the writing. And so an example of one embodiment uh, was in connection with the tibia. The tibia, by the way, the etymology of it is for, uh, from a, the Greek, where the tibia was somewhat equivalent to the oboe. It was a musical instrument. And so we looked at kind of the idea of helping the tibia sing its song uh, and be free. Whereas say, if the foot wasn't functional, the tibia absorbs too much literal pressure and compression. We wanted to relieve that. How can you play this tibial flute, so to speak? So we looked at the fact that the crural fascia surrounds the tibia. And when that crural fascia is overly tight, 
it's like wrapping saran wrap around a flute. You can't get the tones out. So we're looking at freeing the tibia and the interior and the crural membrane around it so that the tibia can uh, have a, enjoy life. And there's a way of working where we propose, okay, perhaps you can take your hand and do some kind of semicircular traction of the front of the tibia and to walk first to feel what it's like and then to walk afterwards after you've had a chance to traction that crural fascia so that it slides over the tibia instead of the tibia always being compressed by it. And so, you know, when they did that, people said, wow, it feels like my tibia can breathe. It feels alive for the first time. I've never brought my attention to the tibia in my life and so on. So the embodiment was, was fantastic and it really works. And afterwards people get up and they walk with just one leg done and they go, okay. Oh, that's a very, that, to me as a structural integrator, that's a very rolfing concept. It's like you Absolutely. work one place and then you have the person get up and move and just have the experience of, oh, that's what's different. Jeff, you talked about maybe talking about it in embodiment uh, for the ribs. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to, for that, I just wanted to say it, the, the subtitle of the book is Exploring Embodiment Through the Skeletal System. And, you know, maybe someday there'll be a, we'll do a book on exploring embodiment through the fascial system, or David's already done a great job with the muscular system in that book that I mentioned earlier. And, Which is also out of print. I look, I'm really upset mm -hmm. about that. Man. Yeah. yeah, you'll love it. So much, I mean, we all know there's, there's so much disconnection in the world, but just in terms of our bodies, you know, we're walking around kind of like a bunch of heads with, you know, that, that are somehow mobile, um, very disconnected from the body. We're a bunch of heads with our chickens cut off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some sister Elaine is rolling great. in her grave. <laughs> That's the quote of the day. Thank you, David. You're, you're, um, you're welcome. I get a quarter every time you use it. Oh, my God. <laughs> But that lack of embodiment, it costs lives. There's a term in medicine now, oh, it's been around for a while, alexithymia, which basically means the inability to connect with our body or to sense what, you know, the language of the body. Alexithymia? Alexithymia. That's a new one. Yeah. You know, it never, it's not real new. I started talking about it about 20 years ago, but it never really caught on. I mean, we use terms like sensory motor amnesia probably, or you know brain smudging things like that more than we would use that term but the classic example is the person that uh, i always use the example poor joe he was never sick a day in his life and at 50 years old he dropped dead suddenly of a heart attack and i contend that you know he had he was maybe not sick maybe he was but he had plenty of symptoms but they may not have manifested as pain in the body because he tuned that out through disconnection but he maybe on Monday morning when he woke up, he was like, oh, my God, I hate my job. Or he comes home at night. Oh, my God, I feel so trapped in this marriage. And eventually that disconnection, you know, we could just explain the physiology behind it later. But uh, it can cost someone their life. So embodiment is a big deal, uh, you know, connecting with the body. So yeah. the exercise I was going to offer, and we can I can walk people through it. They can't be driving. Um, <laughs> okay. It's best. No, they can't be. So if you're pull listening now in your car, pull off to the side of the road or find a nice parking lot. Close your eyes. 
There you go. And or, you know, play it later so when you get home tonight. But um, this is a, a rib one. And it also involves some soft tissue. And I don't want to distinguish between you know, I don't want to set, I don't want to set the bones up as some separate thing. They're not. But yet we chose to separate them just to have you know, a way of embodying. So we, we can separate. We can separate for, for reasons of discussion. It's OK. I'm going to play with this concept of let's go to where the health is most present. And, and I'm, I'm capitalizing the health. Because it can mean vitality, chi, ease, flow, spontaneity, creativity. It can mean a lot of things. So if the person was sitting, they can certainly sit. I'm going to ask them to put their hands over the top. They're, they're, they're spanning the upper ribs in the front, but really the palm is right over the sternum and the maneuvering with the sternum. And I'm just going to ask them to take several breaths and notice how does the rib cage move in response to that. So I'm just going to do it a couple of times myself. We're not trying necessarily to breathe, force our breath up there. We're just breathing the way we would normally breathe. But what are the bones doing in response to that? And then I'm going to ask the listener to bring their hand down to the bottom of the sternum. They could include the zygoid process as well. And they're going to breathe several times and just get a sense of is it easy or is it difficult? How difficult to breathe into that area? And what do the bones feel like? It really helps if a person can actually look at an image of the sternum and the ribs so they can better visualize movement or lack of movement in this area. And then lastly, I'm going to ask them to put their hand, you know, just a little bit above the belly button. So we're off a of bone, but we're still on muscle and fascia. And do the same thing. Now, what I want the, the person doing this to ascertain is what was the most difficult area to breathe into? Where did the bones feel like they were offering resistance? And having determined that, set it aside. So let's say I had the, the, uh, the, the most difficult I can, area. I can, I can give you my example. For me, it was uh, my yeah, upper ribs was on the right side. I'd say like ribs one, two, and three on the right side. Left Ooh, was moving okay. beautifully. But that's wonderful that you were that you were able to that specifically tune into that area. Most I rarely do people actually find it, you know, one side versus yeah, that's great. So I'm gonna ask you just kind of bookmark that, but now we're gonna go down to the, the lower ribs. And let's do three or four breaths there. We're gonna go to the areas that worked well. Bring several breaths into that area. Not trying to force anything. You may notice also if the spine moves because obviously the ribs in the back attach to the spine. One more breath. And then pause. If I were doing this in a class setting, I would have people pause before they go on to the next area and just sense what they sense harvest the sensations, so to speak. Then go to a little bit above the belly button. The same thing. 
they can get as nuanced as they as, as they want. They can actually visualize organs. They can visualize the spine from the inside, the ribs from the inside, on subsequent attempts. Two more into the belly. And we're breathing like we're, to use the term you used earlier, like we're sipping the air. We're not gulping it. We're not forcing it. I'm going to just sit for maybe 10 seconds with the sensations that you may notice there. And now I want you to come back up to the area that was difficult. Breathe in there and just let me know, did anything change? That's the key word. Not is it better, but did anything change? I'd have to say yes. So good, good. So that that shows the power of it shows the, it shows the power of a number of things seeking the health instead of what's wrong, also using less force than more force. I could have just said you know just you know put your hand or put pressure against your rib cage up there and try to force expansion, but that isn't really congruent with what we've been talking about. No, at, with ease is such an important modifier. Did you go? You said with ease is such an important. Qualification, yeah. One of the things I teach is something called dermoneuromodulation, which you may or may not mm -hmm. have heard of. And it involves very, very light touch. And I remember the first time I taught at David's school, David took the course. And uh, several of the faculty took the course. And, of course, David's written a book called Deep Massage. And he teaches classes called Deep Massage. Excellent book, excellent classes. And someone raised their hand and said, how can something so light have any effect? Wouldn't you want to go deeper to have a greater effect? And I was going to give them my answer. Then I brilliantly realized I have David Lauderstein in class. So I said, David, you wrote the book on this. Can you answer the question? David said, and he actually alluded to this earlier. David said, deep is what touches a person deeply. And as we're all three of us are music lovers here. So we, we all know that music touches us deeply. And uh, yet, no one put their hands on us. I was listening to uh, Morning Dew, Cornell 1977, Grateful Dead the other day, and I kept playing it over and over again. No one touched me physically, but God darn, I was touched deeply to the point of tears. So a witness oh, yeah. is a deep, deep touch or deep engagement. So that's, and obviously awareness is part and parcel of uh, what embodiment is all about. If we can kind of extend that into other areas of our lives, just take little, you know, literally 30 seconds to tune into a bone. They're, they're so easy to sense. You Maybe it's just you're driving in your car and you press your calcaneus on the right side into the, or maybe the left side into the floorboard. And just notice that, maybe especially if you're in a traffic light, rather than getting all upset because we're stopped, just Sense, what is that like? And we may not have time to actually harvest the sensations, but we've stopped the chattering mind. We've made a connection. And in my opinion, a connection with any part of the body is a connection with all of the body, including the big body called life. So kind of how I view it. That's a great place, I think, to stop. I, I have a feeling I could go on for another couple of hours with you guys. This uh -huh. is this has really been great, but I'm coming up to coming up to the top of the hour here. Uh, David, was there anything more you wanted to say? Oh, I just I'm enjoying the conversation so much. 
I, I would like a part two, but um, not in particular. I just think um, uh, when Jeff mentioned alexithymia, I never heard of it. So we're continuing our explorations here. And I actually read something while Jeff was talking. It says alexithymia is not a condition in its own right, but rather an inability to identify and describe emotions. People with alexithymia have difficulties recognizing and communicating with their own emotions. And they also struggle to recognize and respond to emotions in others. So, you know, one thing that is the whole book is an expression of is the idea that bones are a core at our core. And as such, they carry mo emotional potentials, but also emotional potentials. And because they're so deep, they're more allied in some respects with the unconscious than with the conscious mind. So by writing this book, we help bring the conscious mind into a deeper connection and relationship to the bones as living parts of our life, as parts that are treasures that need to be valued. And uh, so I think it's a real corrective to uh, other emphases that have been made that don't necessarily address the livingness of the bones, which is our, our theme. Intellectually, I don't know that it's true, but I do because I feel it in my bones. That's right. When we say that, we believe there's that's more than figurative. Yeah, that, that's as deep as you can go. That's as deep as you can go. David, Jeff, thanks for being here today. Thank you, David. Thank you both, David. Exactly. I really appreciate it. Don't touch that dial. Don't touch that phone. Don't hit that 15-second button. Don't hit stop. Have you liked this show yet on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast? Please give it a five-star rating. Tell your friends about it. Share about it. Do you have any questions for me, ideas for the show? Please get a hold of me at bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. You can also reach me through social media channels as well. And thank you again for tuning in. I think two of the most precious resources we have in the world are time and attention. And if you give me your attention, I will always make it worth your time. This is David Lissondak. See you next time here on Body Talk. Body Talk.